Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summerley. Hey guys, what an episode I've got for you this week. So if you want to know what Prince Charles says to you as your appointed Order of the British Empire, or how a liver surgeon and paediatrician put an ear on a mouse's back with a 3D cell car park, or indeed what the future of precision medicine and genomics might be, then incredibly you're in the same place and also you're in the right place because my guest this week is Vivian Parry, OBE. So Vivian's a writer and a broadcaster. She's a scientist by background and she currently hosts medical programs for Radio 4. She writes widely on health for places like The Guardian, she presents films, she does high-level conferences and trains young researchers and academics. She's got a part-time role as Head of Engagement at Genomics England, which delivers the 100,000 Genomes Project, which I'm sure some of you have heard of. She also sits on the board of UKRI, which is the UK Research and Innovation, which is responsible for spending about £7 billion on the UK's research budget. But many will remember Vivian from her role as presenter of the BBC TV science programme Tomorrow's World between 94 and 97. So if you're as old as me or older, you'll probably remember that. And she was part of a huge amount of iconic technology breakthroughs and images that were displayed all around the world. And she's got plenty of interesting stories regarding a few of those. So on the podcast, we chat about Vivian's career from breaking thousands of pounds worth of UCL equipment uh, in her student days, through to learning a trade at women's health organisations, changing tack and uh, doing a bit of broadcasting. She managed to blag an interview, uh, blag blag herself through an interview, actually, uh, with the BBC with absolutely no experience in broadcasting prior. Uh, And now she's moved into precision medicine and, and genetics and genomics and things. And so she's got an incredible background. She's an incredible storyteller. I laughed more than I've laughed recording any episode uh, in this short podcast career so far. So this episode is a must listen. So I hope you guys enjoy it and let us know what you think. So Vivian, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing just fine. And we have this unique situation, don't we, today, that we are actually recording this on the day of the election. We are indeed. we have no idea what <laughs> world our listeners will be living in. Tomorrow's world, if Who you will. Who that? <laughs> Tomorrow's world. <laughs> Awful pun for me, originally, to kick us off. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Vivian? Uh, I'm speaking to you from London, although normally you'll find me nearer Oxford because home for me is uh, just by the airbase of Bryce Norton. Oh, nice. Very cool. What's the weather like up there? Wet at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's just horrific everywhere today. It is awful. Um, yeah, some sort of metaphor for general election day, possibly, who knows. Cool. So Vivian, obviously we we met at the launch of a genomics company, didn't we? Uh, we were sat next to each other at a dinner and obviously we got chatting and loved everything about your career, loved everything about what you're up to and thought, I've got to get you on the podcast to tell all of our listeners all of your story. So... Why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about your background and your story? I always was fascinated by science and I ended up 
taking uh well actually it was a zoology degree but i'm of the age where you could not do genetics which is what i really wanted to do as a single degree oh, interesting so i ended up doing genetics and immunology at ucl and i have to tell you that i was the world's worst worst student <laughs> so not on the so i could i could it, it wasn't about the exams it wasn't about the theory it was the practicals and I have to say I was banned from doing practicals. In fact, UCL told me that they couldn't afford to teach me any longer because I broke so much equipment. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I actually passed my exams without having done any of the practicals because when I broke, I think the, the final straw was a, um, a ground glass lid of a, a chromatogram tank, and that was which was about £4,000, and this is oh way back. So... They just said, just please stop it. Don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so a career in science was clearly not for me. So when I came out of university, <laughs> I asked about for something to do. And I fetched up at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who had a, a, a medical research charity to do with women and babies' health. Hmm. And they said to me, in fact, I'd applied for the job of, I mean, has this for... <laughs> As this far in your early life, I, I'd applied the job as assistant editor on their journal. Oh, <laughs> said, oh, just go in, aim for the stars said, and you might hit the moon sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. They said, we think you'd be, which was very tactful of them. They said, we think you'd be bored doing this, but we've actually got this job coming up with our charity. And as a yeah. royal charity film premiere in six weeks time, there are 2000 tickets to sell. Get on mm. with it. And so... I had a, a kind of a three-pronged job. On the one hand, I was running huge events, uh, fundraising events. Mm. Uh, on the other, I was running their research program. And the final bit, which is the bit I suppose that stood me in good stead for the whole of my career, is three or four times a week, I was uh, out running around the country talking to groups of women about health. And I would go in and I was supposed to talk about women and babies' health, but actually I would just talk about anything. And mm, it generally ended up, because it was women's health, as being about uh, uh, sex and rock and roll, more of sex than the rock and roll, <laughs> uh, given that, that there were a lot of elderly ladies in uh, WIs. But there would always be two in the front row with their arms crossed <laughs> when I got to the sex bit, saying, does yours bother you much? And the other one would say, Oh no, he's ever so good like that. <laughs> that was the kind of general. Anyway, so um, it's a different time, wasn't it? <laughs> different time. So yeah. the Princess of Wales uh, became the patron, and actually Diana and I got on famously. She was a rookie princess, I was a rookie charity organizer, and we worked together for twelve years. Wow! And she, uh, you know, she emerges several times in my story. So when I was about thirty-five. I decided I wanted to go into television, like you do. Of course. I should explain at this point that I have, um, first of all, I have show-off genes in abundance. Mm -hmm. So if I open the fridge door and the light goes on, I'm tap dancing. <laughs> but also, my family are artists, and uh, my cousin John Madden um, is an Oscar-winning film director, Shakespeare wow. in Love and things like that. Um, my whole family, uh, a kind of arts uh, side. 
Wow. So I, and this is a, a really interesting career point for, for, for people. So I had two small children at that time. I, you know, I had, I was the, uh, my husband had been ill. I was the uh, breadwinner hmm. and I couldn't just give up my job because, you know, that was, I was paying the mortgage. Yeah. But that's exactly what I decided to do. And it was the biggest risk I've ever taken in my whole life. And the reason for that was I felt like a bee in a box. I was buzzing around thinking, I want to do this. And I'm trying all the ways I can to make it happen. And it's not happening. And in the end, I realized I was the one with the key to my box. Mm. So I just decided I would leave. And I didn't tell my husband. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, this is starting to make sense as to why you're telling the story now. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he's my ex-husband now, but uh, but anyway, uh, but that wasn't the reason. Uh, But I, (laughs) but I, and I didn't actually find a job in television straight away. I went and I ran the International Motor Show for that particular time. As you do. uh, As you do. And, uh, but I answered an advert in The Guardian and it said, television presenters wanted and I wrote a ridiculous letter saying that on any night of the week I was to be found in twilight rest homes for the elderly true um talking to them about nuclear magnetic resonance as it was then called and I must have sounded completely bonkers but anyway they they asked me to send in a showreel so showreel is where you put you know compilations of your of the clips if you do tally and I had not done any tally mm. so i fibbed and i said to the bbc uh, that the broadcasters couldn't supply the footage in time and so they would have to interview me and it was very entrepreneurial of you it was very entrepreneurial strictly a lie it wasn't strictly a lie they couldn't provide the clips in time of course because they didn't have any because <laughs> they didn't to exist provide. <laughs> anyway you spotted that so um I, anyway, I walked into the BBC and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I had my interview with the editor and halfway through the interview came uh, uh, the question that I've been absolutely dreading, which was how much presenting experience have you got, Vivian? And at that Amazing. point, you can't lie. So <laughs> I said, well, I said, well, on a scale of not very much to bugger all, I said it veers towards the bugger all, actually. <laughs> and there was this silence. And then, <laughs> and then the editor uh, of the programme said, well, we'll have to send you off to make a film then. And <laughs> I was completely astonished. But, uh, dear listeners, that is how I acquired the job of, which was a, a fantastic job, of presenting the BBC's iconic TV science program, Tomorrow's World. Wow. And I went from, with no experience at all, and uh, that 4,000 people had applied for this job, including, he rather crossly told me, uh, Nick Ross and people like that. So lots of established broadcasters. And and I found myself doing a job, which uh, if, if, if there was ever a round peg in a round hole. I was that round uh, peg. Oh, nice. So it was completely fantastic. And you have the ability to go anywhere and just walk into somewhere like MIT and say, I'm from the BBC, tell me what you're doing. Oh. And they would show me this, the most extraordinary stuff. So I was, so from that time, 
I really get my, uh, my love of all things tech. I was one of the first people ever in the BBC to have an email address. Oh, because awesome. Mary's World, we, we, uh, uh, we launched and there was a company, I think it was called Demon at the time. And it was one of the first uh, companies, you know, ISPs. And uh, there I was with an email account, which was this novel thing. And I'm still <laughs> the same provider. It's got about 10 different uh, iterations of, of company. But anyway, so I... I showed all sorts of tech although i should say that if anybody had tech that was being demonstrated by me they should have quailed in terror because <laughs> not only did i wreck the tech but actually those the, the particular big tech things that i i showed always failed <laughs> and can, can went, you give an example went, of something that like mit were doing back there i mean what what year are we talking at this point was it 1994 so this, is, this is this is 1994 95 yeah. so when i went to mit so i went to see 3d television um, oh, wow in 94 in 94 so one of the things that you have to remember, and I know entrepreneurs will not like hearing this, but is the extraordinary length of time between concept and actually Yeah, just the R&D, yeah. So one of the things that I saw in, in, in Boston, and it's a film that I'm really um, well known for, is a film about a mouse with a human ear attached. Mm. And that is an image that went all around the world. Yeah. And that was the earliest example, really, of regenerative medicine. So wow. with these, these two guys, the Vacanti brothers, and Jay was a liver surgeon and Chuck worked in paediatrics. And uh, we, the story was that we went to, well, we went to Boston to make a lot of films. Um, it was always a very rich place to, for stories. But we were making a story about a, little boy called Douglas who was lacking the external pinna of the ear and we we were shown this technique which involved a 3d matrix of a polymer which was made by Bob Langer a very celebrated polymer chemist innumerable spin-outs from his uh, lab in Boston sure. and the idea was that it was uh, it was a 3D cell car park. So once you introduced cells into this matrix, which was molded into the shape of um, Douglas's ear, then cells would colonize all the levels of this car park in a 3D sure. way, rather than in a 2D flat sheet. And then the bit about it being on the back of the mouse was a proof of principle. You know, when you attached it to the mouse, which was a nude hairless mouse uh, whose immune system had been knocked out, uh, would it just, you know, go into a horrible black mess? Would mm. it, you know, fall off? Would it, all yeah. sorts of questions like that. And <laughs> famously, and this is a dreadful story, but the BBC were terribly worried about animal rights activists at the time and said sure. that uh, I had to be very careful how I presented this. So imagine the scene where you've got uh, a nude hairless mice, uh, mouse um, in a Petri dish. Then you've got uh, another one and what I, one with an ear and one without. And what I had to do, my lines were, and here is a mouse with a human ear attached. And here is one I made earlier, uh, which... <laughs> does not have uh, uh, it's had its ear removed and as you can see the mouse is perfectly fine and as I said those lines this mouse 
proceeded to have the most monstrous mouse erection and lick itself <laughs> in the most conspicuous and frankly, dear <laughs> listeners, a very unseemly manner. And I, we had to call for a mouse wrangler with an ice cube. And we waited oh for goodness. 20 minutes waiting for this mouse to recover its composure. And so when <laughs> said to me, well, that mouse, it must have been terrible for the mouse. Because they all imagine that a mouse is kind of looking in a mirror and thinking, oh, my God, look at that. <laughs> And, <laughs> and that was actually the reality of filming that sequence. Oh my anyway. goodness, that is, that is so funny. I mean, there's so there's um there's about a quarter of our listeners that are based in the US, and I don't they they might not have seen this image, or or perhaps our listeners all around the world, you know, might not have seen. We're listening to in eighty two different countries, I think, at the moment. Um, I think people in the UK who are as old as I am and potentially old will definitely know that image and have now. But it went all around the world. Oh, it did it's... go all around the world. Oh, fantastic. So, so many people now will never be able to appreciate that image for what it is <laughs> after, after listening that actually the mouse had an erection uh, for 20 minutes before but it actually was iced. Going, But actually going back to our previous conversation, so at the time I saw, uh, uh, what, so what they were doing was they also had a model for doing um, a tracheal replacement. I do remember this, you know. And what they were doing was they had this cartilage-like material and they were tying it up a bit like a, you know, a beef roast with string yeah, in, rings, would, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in rings so that you would uh, mimic the cartilage. Yeah. And the problem, so the problem they were trying to solve is that um, if you have a uh, cancer in the trachea, then even though you can resect it, so you can take the tumour out and it hasn't actually burst out of the trachea at that point, what you can't do is you can't then stretch back the two ends of the, of the trachea to kind of compensate for the cutout section that's got yeah. the tumour in. So this was a way of providing an artificial trachea. And I saw it demonstrated at the time. So this is 1995. But actually, the first tissue-engineered trachea didn't appear until what two or three years ago correct yeah so it had taken all that time the, the best part of 30 years and it's not just that you know and the ear of course has never had um fda approval and that's partly because you know an ear is not really a very significant uh issue and yeah. to get the approvals that you need from the FDA and people like this it has to be something uh, life-threatening and clearly you know tracheal cancer is is, is that mm. thing but it had taken all that time for the regulating uh, regulatory approvals to take place for the refinements for the all the things that you need to do to make that technology actually go into practice. And that is the reality of regenerative medicine. That is the reality of trying to build a company in that space. You know, it's, as you say, it's not quick wins. And, you know, we see it all the time. You know, we get asked quite a lot whether we as a company, um, as HS, whether we look to bring on companies to support them from the biotech space or they, they you know, often pass us investment opportunities in the biotech space. And, you know, we intentionally don't play there for a lot of these reasons is that, you know, the, the, the amount of money that these people need to go through these clinical trials, to go through these amounts of regulatory hurdles and the, the time that takes, you know, to be a seed stage investor in those companies, you're looking, at, you know, way, as you say, way over 10 years, you know, that's 1994 until, uh, you know, 2016, 17, you know, it's a long, long, long time. And so, yeah. But, but also been... there are other problems that, that, 
so people look back at tomorrow's world and they say, you know, tell me about the things that um, succeeded and how, you know, what failed and you know, mm. they deride the things that failed. But actually, sometimes the reason things fail is not because they actually failed, it's because something better came better along, came along yeah. or a new way of solving the problem came well, they along. they used the knowledge to then iterate and do something slightly different and took it down a different path. And that's, the, again, the reality of R&D. Yes. So there are lots of things like that. I, I always remember one of them was a soy-filled breast implant. And... Mm. <laughs> and the, the the reason for the soy-filled breast implant was that there'd been a huge issue about uh, silicon-filled uh, breast implants and there being problems caused by them. And it was interesting because one of the things that they, they had, a, a you know, sometimes technology has a good idea in it, which is actually the real technology, whereas the thing that it is transported by, as it were, is the thing that fails. Mm. So the soy-filled breast implants were a complete disaster because when I asked, we asked at the time, oh, can we have an, um, one to, you know, film, to show in the, in the film? And this guy took one out of his desk and said, here's a new one. And it looked like something that had been in the glove compartment of your car the whole <laughs> summer. Because oh, it's God. all sticky and, and we just looked at each other and thought that'll never work. But what was neat about this thing was it had a microchip. Okay. And one of the big issues of breast implants, as we've seen from all sorts of problems that have arisen recently with breast implants, is that you can't track them. Mm. So years later, when things start to go wrong, when you want to do a recall, the medical notes are missing, people get them wrong, they put down the wrong number. and having a microchip as part of the implant means that you just you know wave a wand over whatever part of the body yeah. and you put your implant you're a beep in and you and, see some words on the screen <laughs> yes and uh, and you and you then got the part number and the year of manufacture and all those kind of details so that actually was the interesting part but yeah soy filled implants went down the great tomorrow's world uh, <laughs> It's interesting to me that there's not there's not a similar program going on right now. I mean, you there know, might I, be, I suppose, in the depths of the internet, you know, the long tail of the internet. I'm sure there's a, a, lots of these things. But in terms of mainstream, like, you know, broadcasting, there's no there's no equivalent. And I think, you know, I'm definitely biased, and I'm sure the listeners of this podcast are, are self-selecting to the people that would love to see something like that. But I don't know, Vivian, if you've still got the ability to pitch something in, I think a, a modern version, you know, we're seeing a lot of reboots in certain programming. <laughs> like, it's very funny you say that you, because like that, you know? if I got uh, a pound for every time somebody says that to me, I would yeah. be a very rich woman. I used to and love I it as a kid are, more as well. I used to love it. I think there's a real issue. And um, one of the things I, I do now in my life is I'm on the board of UKRI. And for those who don't know what that is, it's UK Research and Innovation. It's all the UK's uh, research council plus um, Innovate UK. And UKRI is responsible for the strategic spend of the UK's entire research budget, which is about £7 billion. But depending on who wins the election today, it could be considerably more. Interesting. <laughs> so um, one of the issues that I perceived when I came to UK was exactly this thing about lack of a place to show 
innovation. Now, one of the reasons why Tomorrow's World is no longer on the screens is because increasingly during the early 2000s, there were a lot of things that didn't come with pictures. So for instance, precision medicine or nanotechnology, where are the pictures that can cover your commentary? That's such a good point. So that was one of the, uh, that was one of the problems. Another of the problems was that whereas you could talk about the magnificence of the engineering of Concord when Concord first came out, actually now you'd want to talk about how there were problems with its, uh, the way it was manufactured, how there were arguments with the French, how the, it was all going horribly wrong. Yeah. So television wants to do different things in presenting. Mm, very true. In presenting science. It's less celebratory, isn't it? Yes, but I do think, and that's that's right, we shouldn't put science on a pedestal. However, there is no place on British television, and probably there's not very many places on uh, the internet, where you can gather together two or four minute films. So things that are not going to make a half hour, things that are definitely not going to make an hour, but things that are just, this is what's going on. And I've argued long and vociferously with UKRI that we should have a form of UKRI TV where we show the best of uh, innovation in those two or four minute shorts that are properly made, because I'm afraid I've done a huge amount of training of uh, of, uh, scientists and uh, academics, and not all of them are so great at explaining it. Of course, of course, of course. So I do a lot of training of people uh, to try and help others understand their technology. But Your honours were for for the service to the public understanding of science, weren't they? Uh, Literally your wheelhouse. Yes, I I was given an ABE. and I rejoice in the fact that I was in China a couple of weeks ago and I was introduced as Madame Ope. <laughs> like Madame now, but Madame Ope. And all the At least they were polite. That's, that's nice. <laughs> but it was for the public understanding of science. And when I went to Buckingham Palace to collect my award, it was Prince Charles who was giving out uh, the awards yeah. that day. And he said, oh, he said, maybe... It, is there any need for this kind of stuff these days? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yes. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, yes, Charles, there, there, there is definitely a need for that. Definitely. <laughs> we know but from the success a... of Tomorrow's World, there is definitely yes. an appetite for it. <laughs> uh, and it's not only... So I think there is a, there a real need. And maybe, James, you and I should be doing this. Maybe we, this is what we should be doing. I mean... But I think there is a real need for people to put their stuff up in a format that is accessible by the public. Because one of the things that you and I have discussed is that unless the public know about new developments, they are not able to ask for them or demand them. I completely and utterly agree. We talk about this on this podcast. We've talked about it a few times with a few different guests that we've had. And there've been a few companies that are innovating I'd say particularly in the primary care space. So they've got an innovation that could be bought by a GP themselves or a GP practice, and it has a direct impact to patients. And 
one of the kind of marketing mechanisms is to simply inform the public that this thing exists so that when they turn up to their GP appointment, they can start putting pressure on and demanding it because they know it exists. They know it could help. They know the GP could buy it. The GP practice could buy it. And so it is genuinely a form of creating demand and actually forwarding the innovation um, agenda simply because in order to inflict a change on, on any healthcare process, there has to be pressure from the top and the bottom. Generally, there's, as, as you'll know, you know, with, with innovators trying to get things in, excuse me, there's, there's normally a key stakeholder in the middle. Um, in a hospital, it tends to be somewhere around associate nurse level. That once you convince them, they've got the, the credibility and the influence to put, you know, get everyone on board with, with doing something new. But you actually have to be putting pressure on you know bottom up and top down you need buy-in from nurses on the ground floor if you're going to go down that route you need buy-in from patients you need buy-in from the general public to put the pressure on there but similarly you know people also need to be then putting pressure on at the top and, and you know if someone on the board knows that it exists and and they quite fancy it they can push downwards if the cfo already knows it or the ceo likes it you know all these different things are, are ways of innovating but i completely agree that any any avenue that you can start putting pressure on in order to you know create that demand is absolutely crucial and, and one super but can i do public. can i do a shout out here of so course. my great thing is public engagement mm. and if you have got a product which is going to be either public facing or used by the public then you must you must involve patients right from the very beginning in the development and the uh, iterations of your product not just because they are going to be its best ambassadors and salesmen but because you will make a much better product that is much more attuned to patient need if you do it that way involving also some of the you know specific support patient support groups i mean you know whether it's something to do with gut health for instance then you need to involve those patient support groups because they too can be really potent pullers of technology i think we concentrate far too often on technology push and we don't think about technology pull and the other mm. reason to engage with patient groups in that way is that sometimes you've got a technology which is really looking for a reason to ex uh, to exist mm. and i think it doesn't always solve the real problems that people have so we gather together people in genomics and we, we find out what it is that they want to know. And increasingly, we're putting patients together with researchers. And particularly for something like rare disease, what happens when you get a whole load of researchers and technologists and patients together is suddenly the patient's all meeting each other perhaps for the first time will start to say something like oh does your son do that mine does that mine does that and suddenly they're all discovering that there is a single thing that all of those uh, children if they've got a rare disease are all doing and suddenly first of all that makes the phenotype is much more distinctive and it's something that you know doctors have never thought about asking about before but also you get patients and carers together and they will start talking about the things that they really need help with and where there's a big gap. 
And I think you need to be problem led rather than solution driven. <laughs> and the pro you know, when people identify a problem that for which there is no current uh, solution, then you're in a much stronger place. I, so often people come along with technology and so the first thing they say, they waste about a minute of their precious pitch time saying, you know, four million people have this disease and three million do this and three million do that. And they throw all the figures at you as if that is enough to convince you of the merit of their case. Mm. But actually what's the real problem they're trying to solve it's not the whole disease, it's generally a part of the disease. And yeah. how are they doing that? It's so, it's so funny, like, <laughs> for everyone that listens to this podcast regularly, they're going to expect me to now go off on a rant about, you, you, you've hit so many things that I say all the time on this podcast, and you've, hit, you've just hit them like so sweetly. And they're probably expecting me to now talk for like the next 15 minutes on, uh, <laughs> on the things <laughs> that I normally just rant about. However, what I'm going to say is, so yet again, here is another guest that has said, you cannot be a solution looking for a problem. You must understand the problem intimately from end to end, figure out the exact bit of it that you solve, double down on that, but try and connect to everything else. You know, completely immerse yourself in the world of the problem and come up with genuine value propositions for what you're actually trying to do. The other thing I'd say is that, yeah, I, I, we, we at HS, when we're looking at investments for <clears throat> seed stage companies, if we're looking at bringing people into our accelerator, if we're looking at supporting them in, in any one of our programs, we actually look for something called patient product fit. We actually, you know, particularly for things that directly touch patients, it's more obvious, but even things that are like backend administration systems or whatever it is, we will trace the innovation right back to patients to actually genuinely see where it does affect them. And for things in like, for example, the orthopedic space, we work with orthopedic research UK to help us with exactly this. You know, they will give us patient groups to literally go and speak to and be like, what do you actually think of this guys? How does this actually affect you? Because you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, whilst those big figures and big numbers will display somewhat of where the problem lies actually you know the anecdotal of how it genuinely affects people still matters because increasingly in technology i'm hearing the this same key message which is not only do you have to solve a problem for people but not only do you have to solve a problem for a buyer <clears throat> you actually have to delight a user as well and that seems to be what is appearing to me now is like a key sticking point in whether innovation actually gets adopted properly because if you can delight users you know we had a guy um elliot engers from a company called infinity and they do this um uh, this sort of task management solution they call it which is basically doctors running around the hospital loads of jobs to do don't know what to prioritize loads of things they could be doing and it's all scribbled on a bit of paper and they just sort of hope for the best with their day and they get to hand over and, and they just sort of report at the end whereas what this does you know anybody that's got a task for a doctor they'll put it into this um computer program essentially and, you know, on the doctor's iPhone will just be a constantly prioritized list of things to do. And the things that don't get done then get handed over and it's all very simplified. But Elliot was saying, you know, you, you can do that and you can, you can create a, you know, borderline Excel plus and, and just sort of hope for the best that people are going to read this thing. But actually, unless you can onboard people to it in 30 seconds, I think he said genuinely it's three minutes. You can onboard a new user in three minutes 
it's popping up and it looks good. It looks nice. It's really intuitive. It's fast. It doesn't crash. You know, all these things have to be absolutely like delightful to the people using it. Otherwise, it doesn't get adopted. And it really kind of rings with with what you've just said there as well. Can I give you another example of that, which Please. is D for D. D for D stands for Devices for Dignity. It's based in the University of Sheffield. And it specializes in solving the problems that are, let's say that they're less often thought about by uh, technologists. So these are the problems with washing, with personal care, um, sure. things that are, you know, social, care stuff. social care stuff, you know, a better bottom wiper. Yeah. Uh, that sounds a tawdry thing, but actually so important massively to so many people. Massively impactful. Stuff, yeah, absolutely. Well, they brought together a whole load of people and one of the big issues, and this was for people with a whole range of actually different conditions, was that they found it very difficult to hold their heads up so motor neuron disease, you can think of a lot of different conditions that uh, would result in that. And the kind of collars that people are given, surgical collars, they're those horrible things that you see people, they can have, well, they're not supposed to turn their heads, but you can see that it's very white uncomfortable. White foam things. White foam things, yeah, very yeah. uncomfortable to wear and people take them off. Anyway, they worked with patients to develop something which... If you see, uh, there's, a, there's some peoples in Africa who have rings around yeah. their neck yeah. and their rings of decreasing size. Yeah. And they did something like that. And it's went through several iterations with the patients. It's a beautiful design. It's beautiful to look at. It's extremely comfortable to wear. People don't feel... You know, very self-conscious in it because after all if you're wearing one of those white things you know it just sticks out a mile it yeah. almost looks something like you know you're wearing something that's <laughs> why, is it, why, is it, why is it a fashion white? item yeah <laughs> uh, but it but it really works it really does the job anyway uh, d4d have just won the queen's award for industry uh, which is a very oh, big wow. deal in the uk and that was entirely making something that delights so it's just it's just super important and you can you can see exactly what yeah if if you're going to delight your users you're going to get uptake you're going to get adoption your innovation is going to be stickier it just seems to make so much sense that people should be aiming for that not as i say not only solve a problem but make sure you delight your users and yeah sorry to bore the regular listeners of this podcast that's probably something i'm going to repeat for the next 10 episodes until it's We've only just covered a very early part of my... I better quickly bring you up I know, of course. Yeah, God, yeah. With, I, yeah we haven't got very far. We, um, we explore many That's all right. We've got sort of half an hour left. We've got, we've got time. We've got time. So what happens in television always is that you're a very ephemeral product, if I can put it that right. way. So we had a new editor of Tomorrow's World, and the first thing that the new editor does is clear the shop window yeah. of all the soiled goods. So often <laughs> go all the go all the presenters. And I've done, you know, I did quite a lot of television there. And I actually, I still continue to make uh, films today, but for a whole range of, 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 of corporates and many kind of technology films too. But I had always been a bit of a writer and I found myself uh, doing, in addition to, I did a lot of radio and also still do a lot of radio. So I've done masses and masses of 
programs for Radio 4 uh, on things like ethics on medical health. So I did a very long series called Am I Normal? And Am I Normal turned out to be the most wondrous thing for a series. We started out wanting to do four and I think we made pretty near 50 in the end. Because of course, what is normal? So it was like, you know, am I very, very tidy or have I got obsessive compulsive disorder? Where is the dividing line? What does it say about which side of the line you are? Who decides what's the normal line? Does it shift? So of course, if we were talking about what normal blood pressure would be 10 or 15 years ago, it would be considerably higher than the normal blood pressure is considered to be now. Mm. So all those things change. So that was a really interesting program. But I did a lot of writing. So I was a columnist for The Times. I was a columnist for The Guardian. I contributed a lot of pieces to all sorts of newspapers and uh, magazines. Uh, I was the agony aunt of Good Housekeeping. If people are listening, think oh, wow. is the agony aunt. And agony aunt is... You know, uh, dear good housekeeping, my husband ran off with his secretary. What shall I do? Um, so that was, so I, I, I did a lot of that. Um, I was uh, the main woman columnist at the News of the World. Now, the News of the World is a big tabloid newspaper, or was a big tabloid newspaper. It's been shut down uh, now. But I was the <laughs> journalist probably that you'll ever, ever know who had a column in the News of the World, but also had simultaneously a paper published in the Journal of Molecular Biology. (laughs) Yeah, one publication that obsesses about the truth and another that potentially doesn't. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. But during that period of time, the Princess of Wales died. Um, I was on her memorial. I was trustee of her memorial fund for a while. Uh, which was extraordinary. I was, Were you close to her at that point? Uh, I was always uh, quite close to her. I mean, mm. I, I worked with her for many, many years. And, you know, the last time I heard her was, I suppose, three weeks before she died. And she mm. dropped me a line saying she was having this wonderful summer romance and uh, but was oh. looking forward to going back to work um, in September. And, yes, I mean, I... It, so she was very important to me in, 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 in a lot of my life. Anyway, there was um, uh, another thing that I did was I was on uh, the council of the MRC, so the Medical Research Council, which many people will know yeah. as a worldwide role. Um, I was also on the council of University College London and in fact became its vice chair of council. And that was over a period of about 10 years. And the chair of the Medical Research Council at the time I was on its council was a man called Sir John Chisholm. And Sir John Chisholm was asked to head up a project called the 100,000 Genomes Project. And the 100,000 Genomes Project was, and many people might disagree with me, but I suspect not, was the only good thing David Cameron ever did while he was <laughs> in office. <laughs> oh, so fantastic. Some people might remember that David Cameron had a child who had a rare disease and in fact he subsequently Mm. died. And so he Mm. was always very attuned to the problems faced by parents of children with rare disease. And in particular to this concept of the diagnostic odyssey. So 
you have a child who's either shortly after birth or in uh, infancy develops a whole range of symptoms and frankly doctors have got no idea they can guess and so they will do a test for their best guess it comes back negative they'll do another test it might be this it comes back negative all these tests take a long time and it's and quite years expensive. and very expensive and it's years and years and years meanwhile so just to sort of cast go back a bit when the human genome project came along it famously took 10 years and cost three billion pounds and ten thousand scientists and one whole genome sequence would cost the nhs i think you could do 30 for its entire budget if it was still that if it was still that cost wow. uh, so it, it, it extraordinary it had been a real issue about the, the cost. And here's another example of how long things take back. Because I was a reporter at the time of the Human Genome Project. And like all the other reporters, oh, it's going to transform medicine and by Tuesday tea time. And, and, and of course, it, it didn't. And one of the reasons it didn't was because of the huge cost and the huge complexity. But the other really interesting thing about the Human Genome Project, and I know I'm preaching, many people will already know these things, but in case you don't, um, when the project, the Human Genome Project started, people had been guessing how many genes there might be, and 100,000, 150,000, and of course, as you'll know, it actually turned out to be nearer 20,000 genes, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is the same as a starfish. Interesting. So how can humans be so complex and have just 20 odd thousand genes? And the other issue was that the number of genes that the number of the bits of DNA that carry specific instructions, the genes only account for a minute proportion of the total DNA of the genome. So what on earth is all that other stuff doing? And uh, James Watson said that all that other stuff was junk or and other people thought perhaps it might be kind of bubble wrap for genes protecting them in some way but we now know that the rest of the dna the dna between the genes is really important because those are the sites for regulation and control of the genes that dial up and down their activity depending on the person the individual's circumstances mm. So whole genome sequencing suddenly became much, much more important than just looking at what's called exomes. So exomes is only looking at the instruction bits of um, the DNA. Couple that with a dramatic fall in the price of sequencing down to about less than a thousand pounds when the uh, 100,000 Genomes Project started and now, as you, you'll know, falling uh, all the time and probably now about less than, certainly less than £500. And the other thing was the computing. So it's no good just having a sequence. You need the computing power that will help you analyse and interpret that sequence. So when the 100,000 Genomes Project started, nobody had ever sequenced 100,000 genomes. And it was an edge of science project. And when we began it, and I was drafted in to help with the public engagement because 
trust and confidence of the public is actually central to the whole of precision medicine because unless you have trust by the public that their data is uh, secure and being used appropriately then precision medicine just uh, yeah, it's really you know, nice isn't it is, is on th- is on thin ice but it, it was an extraordinarily difficult project and it was a hybrid project so it was both a research project can we do this it was a clinical care project so this was giving real diagnosis to real people with either cancer or with rare disease and finally and perhaps very importantly it was um, an nhs transformation project so now uh, nearly six years later last year we sequenced the final uh, genome of that hundred thousand and the nhs is about to open its uh, own uh, nhs genomic medicine service and the UK becomes the first country in the world to have genomic medicine as a routine part of healthcare. And it's starting with rare disease. And now what happens is that if you have a baby in a special care unit who obviously has something, but nobody knows what, then whole genome sequencing is the first line rather than, you know, infinite number of tests. You know, now, I, did, um, I did a neonate placement and I did it at a level three unit. So, you know, babies born in, you know, in that situation, you know, just, just in, in you saying that there, what, what my mind went to was just the, the pair, the amount of parental anguish, which will just decrease just because the time to diagnosis yes. decrease just in, like infinitely almost and yes the worry and the the concern and 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 the, you know because the, the baby isn't healthy and the parents are just feeling so much empathy for that the entire time and i think yes you know something like this not only treats the baby it treats the parent it treats the rest of the family it treats yes. parent, you know it treats and let's not kid so ourselves many- yeah that the diagnosis can always lead to uh, a treatment it, it can't for the moment but the thing is that there's several things here is that for, for obviously for parents, knowing what it is is really important. Completely but agree. actually, that's the first start. That's the first step in being able to find other parents who've got children with the same condition, and that's yeah. hugely important. And only when you've got a number of people um, all with the same condition can you start doing the research. Mm. And I think a lot of people think that precision medicine always will lead to a really expensive treatment. But actually, I mean, for instance, there was a baby um, who appeared to have uh, terrible problems with their immune system. And in fact, the baby died, but the mother was pregnant uh, with a second child. And so we did whole genome sequencing for both the baby that had died and the one uh, yet to be born. And what we found was that there was a particular uh, variant which was involved in the uh, metabolism of B12, so a vitamin, and this uh, B12 vitamin, lack of it, manifests as problems with the immune system. So the second baby, when it was born, got massive, massive um, injections of of B12, and it's the baby is is not completely well, but um, he's probably going to have a relatively normal life. Wow. So. You know, there, there are things like that, that actually, if you know what the problem is very early on, it's a bit like the disease 
um, PKU, which uh, is diagnosed from a heel prick test, where you know you, it's the solution is dietary. Sure. And but if you don't know that and you don't test for it, then actually the child's uh, course is is pretty disastrous. Mm. And so there are many, many things like that where knowing right from the start uh, what the problem is. And uh, we're thinking on Genomics England about how we should go forward with uh, whole genome sequencing at birth. Is that a good idea? I mean, obviously, this is not for late onset diseases, but for things that can be actioned in childhood, that if you knew about it, that would actually make a, a big difference to the to the child. And I think there's a big thing there also about pharmacogenomics. I think, I think pharmacogenomics, people are still worried about the value of precision medicine. And I'm talking about in the health system, you know, what sure. is it cost effective? But I think pharmacogenomics is the, is the bit about whole, about sequencing and that people really get straight away. Because if you say, look, we'll do this test and we'll tell you whether you should be taking a low dose of this particular pain medicine or a higher dose, or whether, you know, if you have, you can go and have these things just done direct over the counter and you'll have something that says your caffeine metabolism is, is fast and therefore you can drink lots of cups of coffee without. It's quite tangible, you know, getting the result yes. and making a change. Yes, yeah. but you think, well, caffeine metabolism, is that any good? Well, actually, the, the, the asthma medication, theophylline, is metabolized in exactly the same way. And if you're yeah. a fast metabolizer, you need an additional dose because otherwise um, you won't have uh, a therapeutic effect. So there are lots of things that could make a big, uh, big difference there. And I think it's only in its infancy. And I don't think the detail has been worked out you know is it better to do whole genome sequencing is it better to do arrays is it better to do single tests or do you use the knowledge from whole genome sequencing to develop low-cost diagnostics and one of the things that I'm particularly involved in is developing uh, a project in which we uh, work with communities um, the diaspora of many different nations that live in the UK and are UK citizens to donate their DNA so that their DNA uh, and the variants it contains which will obviously differ from uh, region to region of the world very substantially so that we've got a way of having a, a, a set of data which other researchers from other parts of the world can use to develop low-cost diagnostics for their own country. That's very cool. That's very cool. Here's a, here's a question for you, Vivian, based on sort of your, your position at Genomics England and all the, all the knowledge and experience that you've got in this space. Should everyone have their genome sequenced, in your opinion? No, uh, I don't think so. I... Very strong answer. I like that. <laughs> I really definitive I so, not a politician answer at all just yes no <laughs> uh, I think not uh, and I think not because I don't I don't want I don't want my no, first input, of all for example I just don't want to know that stuff no. yes first of all because it's a matter of choice mm. and secondly because I think there is an extraordinary amount that we do not know yet People always think that there are lots of uh, genes that have 
if you like, that are slam dunks, that if you've got that gene, therefore you will have whatever it is. And actually there are very, very few genes like that. And one of the remarkable things about the data set at Genomics England is that we are discovering there are quite a lot of people walking around who should by rights have very, very serious illness and do not. <laughs> and You don't often hear about this stuff. No, exactly. So, for instance, I've had you know some of the uh, you know the direct consumer stuff, which uh, all say that I should be morbidly obese and, <laughs> and have type two diabetes. Now, as James will confirm, I'm not morbidly <laughs> that is obese. Not true. No. <laughs> and in fact, uh, my childhood uh, uh, nickname was Stick because I was stick thin. Right. And uh, and I've always been thin and always well not i wouldn't say i was in there but just covered well enough <laughs> but and that's not because of any you know i'm any great paragon of virtue about eating or uh, exercising or anything like that but clearly there is stuff elsewhere in my genome which is saying actually she's going to be thin mm. and we don't know anything about that that stuff and when people say you know the list of the um the genes for instance that the america the i'm going to get all these initials wrong ahsg american human genetic society so these are the 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 things that they will look for in babies at at birth well there are 59 but there are (laughs) there are twenty thousand genes people (laughs) you know 59 Um, yeah so you know, really, there is so little that we do not know. And even somebody like Angelina Jolie, which was all this thing about, oh, you must have a you know, double mastectomy if you've got this particular variant of, course, of, the of BRCA. Gene, yeah. But actually, let me tell you that four out of five women who have carried that particular variant will get uh, breast cancer or ovarian cancer, but 20% of them won't. Yeah, and if, if, that, if they were the lottery odds, I'd be playing every week. Yeah, exactly. So there's so yeah. much that we we don't know. And I think that people um, can be terrified into taking action that it's either not necessary or might even be harmful. Or alternatively, there's a kind of nihilism. So if you have a result that says, you know, James, you've gotten eating all the pies gene. <laughs> there isn't one, folks. There isn't one. Uh, <laughs> but if you had and eating all the pies gene, what's the evidence that knowing that stops you eating pies? Well, actually, uh, you know, lots of people say, oh yes, people change their health habits, but that's a very biased sample that they're looking at because these are people that are- Self-selecting for wanting to find information. Wanting to find information who are already interested in their own health. But in general, people who haven't eaten all the pies gene will just say, well, either they'll say, well, I've got this gene, so I might as well eat all the pies. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's my destiny. Uh, Or... um, they'll they'll go into a kind of slough despond and 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 comfort eat all the, the things up yeah. Yeah. you know people can interpret the results in different ways so you know eating all the pies well does that mean if i uh, can't eat all the pies i can eat all the cakes <laughs> yeah you know so yeah. so i think these things are not clear cut and I, when I look at the particularly the direct-to-consumer market, I really 
worry about that market. I was going to ask you about your your hopes and fears in in the space, and it sounds like this is one of them. So I worry about the direct-to-consumer market for two reasons. Um, First, because, and and, and let me say before before you all write in and say who was that terrible woman, um, (laughs) I... There are some companies who are extremely innovative, very good, and very ethical. Good on you. We like you. However, there are also some rogue companies out there who either do, who do one of two things. Either they say that they offer their product for, um, you know, just tiny amount of money because they want the data. And the people who buy the product is very often for genealogy or other lifestyle things don't understand that what they're doing with their data. So that's one thing. And when, if people turn around and say, Oh, but they read the, um, the terms and conditions, I bet you they didn't. Mm, And the other bit of it is, and that should, that thing about appropriating data and using it in a, in a, in a way that was, not intended that will come and bite the whole sector so there will be i predict a huge scandal somewhere where data will be used inappropriately by one of these companies um and it will just cause uh, a complete lack of confidence in personalized medicine throughout the sector and that's and you can see one of those things happening already, which is the Golden State killer was identified using data, not from the Golden State, uh, from State killer's DNA, but that of his relatives through a genealogy company. And the problem is that is because you can, we are all related and because you can infer uh, results, you only need to get 10% of the population, something like that, um, uh, to infer uh, information about the rest of us who oh haven't made God, a decision really? about uh, whether we want to be included in these things or not. And if you remember that the whole thing about personalised medicine is that you want it to drive up equality of access and uh, equality of care. Absolutely. And what will happen is that you will have people who do not want to contribute their data. And very often there'll be minorities in different countries and they won't want to contribute their data for fear that they're going to be identified or uh, somehow, you know, care will be denied to them or there are all sorts of worries that people have, including being identified as a criminal and they won't give their data. So therefore those communities will get less good care because after all with genomic medicine, what you're doing is you, in order to get the best possible care for yourself and your family, you're relying on others having submitted their data. Mm, And and as they in turn are relying on you having submitted your data. So these things are, you know, it's a collect, it's a global collective endeavor. And, I think there are some companies who are playing fast and loose with people's data and that will, it will rebound on, on all of us and actually on the global uh, community. And I think the other bit of that is that there are not enough standards and regulations and there's a huge bow wave of these uh, direct consumer tasks going out 
which health systems are not able to cope with. So you're having loads of people pitch up with, this is my test result, this is my test result. And the, particularly for serious uh, things, health systems are having to repeat the tests and very often they turn out to be either false positives or false yeah. Yeah, at cost and, you know, increasing waiting list times and all the rest of it. it yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, we talk all the time about sensitivity and specificity when it comes to a new medical device. And that medical device has to be CE marked and ISO compliant and FDA regulated for exactly this stuff to say, you know, to check that it does what it says it does. And you have to tell people what those two numbers are. But you know, for, if if people aren't asking for the specificity of these various outcomes, if they're just sort of saying, "Well, oh, you're more at risk of," and then listing ten things to get around it, yeah, understandably, people are then going to descend upon the health system. It's the same reason you just wouldn't just launch a test, which just yeah, okay, it it said. 100% of the people with the disease had the disease, but it also picked up another you know, 50% of people that didn't have the disease. You, know, you wouldn't be allowed to put a medical device out there that was doing that stuff because it would just collapse health systems for exactly the reasons that you've said. And I think it definitely is something that, that obviously you're very passionate about keeping a lid on and ensuring that the public know this stuff. So Vivian, I've just spotted the time. I realize we've got to go uh, very shortly. Um, I just want to wrap up by just asking you, I guess, your, your vision of the future. And I guess, what are the, what are the positives to come out of, out of, the, um, out of the projects at, at Genomics England? I think that the positives will be about the, I think, first of all, it will be knowledge. So I think that we've built a kind of infinity loop where the more knowledge we find about um, different variants, it goes straight back into the system so that you get a constantly learning uh, system. So the way you're not waiting for years for a particular result then to get in uh, to the system. So I think it will be much more responsive. Uh, I think that it will not go as fast as we think. However, I think that personalized medicine is here to stay and I think will become an increasing part of many different areas of medicine. So all those diseases that we've previously regarded as being in one bucket, like diabetes, type 2 diabetes, or uh, asthma, or COPD, or any of those kind of things, I think you'll find them very uh, carefully stratified. And I think in 10 years' time, you will not go in for a diagnosis of uh, into a diabetes clinic for instance without having an array done first to find out what not only how you should be stratified but also perhaps uh, what uh, the pharmacogenomics so the pharmacodynamics of the types of drug that you might be given and which would best suit you i think that there will be some issues about the cost, the very high cost of some personalized medicines. I don't know how that's going to resolve because they're certainly not affordable across the world. And I think that increasingly you're going to see patient governance of their data because I think that's the only way to go because otherwise I think that the idea that corporations are going to run off with the data, make huge profits and only benefit the tiny proportion of the world that can pay for those uh, drugs um, is going to ring very hollow for lots of people. 
Amazing. Um, I know you've got to run, Vivian, so I won't keep you much longer. I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Some incredible knowledge and insights on genomics and some hilarious and informative stories from your past, which has been thoroughly enjoyable for me. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll be in touch for uh, potentially pitching a reboot of Tomorrow's World with you. I can't wait. Indeed. <laughs> uh, it's been an unalloyed joy, James. Thank you so much. I've so Thanks, enjoyed Vivian. Bye Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.